Howdy everybody, I'm Wilson King, and this is the last episode of Season 1 of ADD History. Episode 6, Species with Amnesia. Here, we come to one of the biggest events of human history. It's controversial for those who are even aware of it. It's also a dramatic event that I've been kind of building up to for about four episodes. In particular, it's a topic of vigorous debate right now, as the older perspective struggles to dispute newer evidence on the subject. Between 12,800 years ago and 11,600 years ago, the Ice Age ended sharply. This time it's called the Younger Dryas, and sometimes that term is followed by the word event. Something big happened, and the conventional explanations for what that big event was are wildly inadequate. In fact, they do their best to insist that nothing big happened at all, and the gigantic changes to the life, climate, and geology of Earth that happened between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago are all just a coincidence. The whole planet fell out of the Ice Age like a drunk falling downstairs, and it all happened for no particular reason, right? I'm pretty convinced there is a reason. I always try to give both sides of an argument, but in this case the conventional reasoning is wildly convoluted and pretty unlikely, and there's not really room to explain it. That is the story of how this time was totally boring and nothing really interesting happened, and you're welcome to believe that, but here's the story that is fascinating about how the world was changed forever. So fuck the system, Graham Hancock is the man. For this episode, I am largely relying on the work of that wonderful man, Graham Hancock, who has compiled evidence from many great and brave archaeologists and scholars. This is also based on the work of his friend, Randall Carlson, a geologist who did the same in his field, and himself contributed a lot to the theory of the catastrophe that happened then. These men stand for scientists of all kinds that have risked their livelihoods to share their controversial findings about this important time in Earth's history. It's the anthropological equivalent of flicking a lion's nutsack, and I love it. The root of this debate starts a long time ago, during the scientific revolution in the 1600s or so. Essentially, as is common knowledge, the Catholic Church controlled everything in Europe for a pretty good chunk of time. It's an oversimplification, but I'm willing to make it at the moment. I tend to think that hating on Christianity is a pretty dead joke. I've generally found them to be pretty nice people. That being said, the Catholic dogma in the 15 and 1600s was absolutely batshit crazy. They were burning people at the stake and drowning people in cages for, like, basic rational thinking. This made Enlightenment scientists pretty salty towards the church, their ideas, and that book that they were so fond of. Due to this, it became very fashionable to disprove pretty much anything that was mentioned in the Bible as utter nonsense with logic and reason over the course of time. To be fair, a lot of the Bible does seem... pretty unlikely. Why it matters here is because the scientific side of the debate back then made a point to disprove worldwide act-of-God catastrophes, like the story of the Great Flood. Instead, they insisted that almost everything in geology happens really gradually, especially in the time that humans have existed. As I described a couple episodes ago, it is probably true that most of what falls under the umbrella of geology is very gradual, like continents moving and mountains rising. But when things like meteors and supervolcanoes happen, it's clear that a lot of very hardcore stuff is going to happen in a very short period of time. No one can dispute this fact, but the stuffy types maintain that nothing catastrophic could have happened on Earth recently. So, yeah, the biblical version of the flood story is pretty absurd, with all the mating pairs of animals being loaded onto a boat. Yeah, I could see how people trying to make the world a little bit more logical would have a problem with that one. 
A running theme that this chapter is swirled around is what I call telephone theory. There may have been a totally logical event, then 10,000 years of telling the story to children in a cave, yada yada yada, and you end up with a crazy myth about a floating sex zoo. In this case, if one takes that story at face value, then realizes it was retold and manipulated by people for one reason or another for millennia, it makes sense that it might have some kind of truth to it, but it has gotten a little goofy along the way. After all, the sheepherders that were telling the story didn't know what a genetic sample was, or whatever the original story of Noah's Ark might have actually been about. The biblical flood story could be dismissed if it was the only legend of its kind, but, as I'm sure you're tired of hearing me say, that is not the only version of the flood story. Not even close. In fact, basically everybody has some version of a great flood story. In the Pacific Northwest, it involved putting all of the people and animals onto a bunch of canoes that they tied together, and in Indian mythology, Vishnu incarnates as a fish and tells a guy to build an ark. Actually, a lot of them basically come down to the idea that a god of one kind or another came to a guy who was extremely cool, and the god tells the dude to build a boat to survive an epic flood, because the god thinks the dude is the only remaining decent human on Earth. Sounds like people were real dicks like 13,000 years ago. It is worth noting that the place where they don't generally have a major flood myth is Africa, which is where the majority of megafauna-like elephants did not go extinct around 12,000 years ago. That's interesting, because if there was a global flood event related to ice caps melting almost instantly, Africa would barely notice because it's mostly an elevated plateau, and it's about as far away from ice caps as a place can be. Anyway, the reason almost everyone has a myth about a gigantic catastrophic flood is because that's probably what happened, starting 12,800 years ago and ending 11,600 years ago. Not that it was one long flood the entire time, but that time was a fucking disaster, and that disaster involved a lot of flooding. This is what is called the Younger Dryas, and I would dare to call it an event. In that time was the sudden end of the Ice Age and a gigantic mass extinction. If there were any advanced human civilizations at the time, they collapsed real hard, just like we would if the same thing happened to us. The people who survived, if they were in the right place, were basically back to square one. It was an apocalypse, and really bad times like that tend to not have very good, clear stories about them. The stories become legends. I will start with what happened of this story, as an evidence, and move on to why it happened possibilities afterwards. Part 1. Evidence. Exhibit A. The End of the Ice Age. First, the end of the Ice Age. Remember in the last couple episodes how I described a world that was largely covered in ice? Around 22,000 years ago was the glacial maximum, the coldest that the planet had been in hundreds of millions of years. It was, supposedly, theoretically, colder like 600 million years ago before complex life evolved on Earth. There's only been ice caps on this planet for about 20 million years, which sounds like a lot, but that's only 1 25th of the time that Earth has had anything remarkable about it. Life. In the time span of Earth that matters, when there's been life besides bacteria and mold on this little rock in space, 22,000 years ago was as cold as it ever got, and in the big picture, the last 10,000 years up to now are just a little bit warmer than that. I know that sounds like something someone says before launching into an advertisement for ExxonMobil, but one of the grander points I've been trying to make in this whole season of the show is to have a sense of perspective of the planet that we live on. The specific point that I'm making right now is that it got a lot warmer really fast 12,000 years ago. Back before then, ice that was miles deep covered practically all of modern Canada and a good portion of Europe and Siberia. The Antarctic ice sheet extended well onto South America and may have extended all the way to Australia. Well, the world got a whole lot less covered in ice around 12,000 years ago. 
Global temperatures rose substantially in a very short period of time and have been close to what they are now ever since. When people make a case that global warming is the end of the world, they never show a graph that goes back past 10,000 years. This is because the temperature spike of 12,000 years ago makes even the most wild projections of man-made climate change look utterly insignificant. No, I'm not denying the science, I'm just saying that what happened in the Younger Dryas was ridiculously hardcore. Yes, the climate changing has totally ruined lives before, but it probably wasn't because they were driving SUVs too often 13,000 years ago. Maybe they were, though. I don't know. The scientific establishment has practically no explanation of why there was such a sudden and dramatic change 12,000 years ago, mostly because they refuse to admit that any kind of catastrophic event could have happened. Remember, if a scientist wants to keep their funding, they better not start talking crazy about world-changing catastrophes at the end of the Ice Age. Really, it's shockingly bad for one's career in the sciences if they entertain this idea. It's completely against the basic principles of science for subjects like this to be taboo, but throughout history there has always been some dickhead in an institution who doesn't want some questions asked or answered. Those people almost always sucked. Exhibit B. Mass Extinction The second point is the mass extinction event that happened then. 15,000 years ago there were woolly mammoths and giant herds all across the northern hemisphere and wonderful supersized animals of all kinds across the world. By 10,000 years ago, the only place one could find animals like that was Africa, a plateau that is nowhere near the ice caps, and the Himalayan plateau, which is also elevated and near the equator. There used to be megafauna-like elephants all over the planet, but now they basically only exist in elevated areas right next to the equator. The significance of that observation has to deal with the pattern of how other megafauna like the mammoths went extinct. In contrast to Africa during this time, North America appears to have been absolutely devastated with roughly three-quarters of the megafauna living there suddenly going extinct. Similar evidence has been found in Siberia, but it is limited because of how remote the whole area is. The conventional perspective on what happened to all the woolly mammoths, etc., is something like a shrug followed by suggestions like maybe they couldn't survive the changing climate? Or humans might have hunted them to extinction? I'll give half credit to the idea that woolly mammoths were totally evolved for the Ice Age. But if it ended gradually, they could have just continued to migrate north to suitable climates. If it's too warm in Texas for Mr. Mammoth, just walk to fucking Canada. Elephants aren't stupid, and while it surely would have been more complicated than that, you get the point. This is probably not the primary or even significant reason so many Pleistocene animals went extinct. On the point that humans hunted the mammoths, horses, camels, giant bears, saber-toothed tigers, and many others all to extinction in North America, that's fucking crazy. The low estimate is that 60 million tons of mammoth meat would have had to have been systematically exterminated by a theoretically tiny human population of the same area that also declined very sharply at the same time. That is tens of millions of mammoths and their predators all being wiped out before they could even reproduce. It's especially ridiculous if one is maintaining the older perspective that humans only showed up in North America at that exact time with Stone Age technology. Thankfully, the evidence that humans have been in North America for well more than 10,000 years is now starting to be pretty well accepted. There's fossilized footprints of humans in New Mexico dated to 23,000 years ago, among plenty of other evidence. The famous Clovis spearhead was popular across North America in this time, and it is found in the remains of mammoths from the Stone Age there. It was an effective hunting tool, but not so effective that hunter-gatherers could have wiped out so many large and dangerous animals with them. It is possible that humans living in that time right before the Younger Dryas had some pretty advanced technology that we are no longer aware of, which was vaguely covered in the last two episodes. Still, 
even if they were hunting with helicopter gunships and tanks and they had zero regard for ending entire species, it would have been an absolutely crazy undertaking for humanity to wipe out all of the creatures that went extinct during this time. It's not like they were wiping out the suicidally stupid and vulnerable dodo birds either. The creatures that went extinct then were the largest and most threatening creatures on the planet at the time. Then there's the mysterious circumstances of how these creatures are often found now in places like North America and Siberia. There's a phenomenon in these places called mammoth kills, or boneyards. Many areas have been found with crazy numbers of mammoths and other completely random animals smashed together in silt. Sometimes these mammoths still have meat and fur on them, which means they were practically mummified by the conditions in which they died. The evidence appears to suggest that these giant piles of random animals died of suffocation sometimes, in the cases where it can be determined to be anything else than simply being smashed by an incomprehensibly powerful force. One notable example is a mammoth that was found preserved, with its back legs broken as if it was hit head-on by a tsunami. It was effectively mummified in icy water and muck, with food still half-chewed in its mouth. Now, I'm obligated, as a man in his 20s, to mention that it died with a still-present woolly mammoth erection, which is evidence of suffocation, apparently. No comment, but it's evidence. I looked for about an hour for where that particular mammoth was found. I think it's, I think it's Ohio. And there are so many similar stories along those lines that I gave up, but it's clear that a lot of mammoths died in similar ways to that at some point in the Younger Dryas. Exhibit C. Advanced Human Civilization. Anyway, third is the point of human civilization. Conventionally, it is believed that humans were exclusively hunter-gatherers up until about 6,000 years ago at the most. The only proof we have of this is proof that that couldn't possibly be true, as many advanced megalithic structures were built well before then. Still, 6,000 years ago is about as far back as records of any kind go, and the people living 10,000 years ago seem to have been basically in the Stone Age for the most part. But the evidence that those people 10,000 years ago were the children of previous generations that had endured an apocalypse is getting pretty hard to ignore. The people living 13,000 years ago may have been pretty advanced in ways that we no longer understand. I do understand if you're getting tired of hearing me say that constantly, though. This isn't to say that people have been digging up smartphones from 13,000 years ago, but if advanced technology like that existed back then, it would be absolutely erased by time by now. This is my lost object theory in a nutshell that I've been mentioning since the beginning of the podcast. There is no time where it applies better than the time of 13,000 years ago, before the end of the Ice Age. Advanced technological objects like computers, vehicles, etc. disintegrate pretty quickly if not cared for, but are also full of useful and valuable resources that can be repurposed. If civilization suddenly crashed in a worldwide disaster tomorrow, the vast majority of advanced tech that we have now would be recycled by the survivors in a thousand years or simply just destroyed. The gold connectors in a smartphone is worth more as gold than as a component in an object that no one living has ever seen function. By 10,000 years, the memory of these magical machines would be completely gone. If anything, there would be these strange legends of magic stone tablets that talked and knew everything. Sounds pretty weird when you say it like that, right? I'm not saying they did have smartphones. I'm saying we would never be able to know if they did. It does seem likely that whatever civilization existed at that time was not half as messy as we are now, nor as dense and widespread. Whether they were hunter-gatherers or flying car enthusiasts, their relative lack of pollution makes us look like real dirtbags. But, to be fair, I couldn't find a single example of a type of plastic that wouldn't be broken down in a thousand years. Yeah, plastic does break down pretty quick in the scheme of things if it's in sunlight, and complicated molecules like that tend to fall apart in nature pretty quick. 
I won't dive into the chemistry too deeply, but between oxidation and UV radiation, even the most horrible chemicals return to natural molecules pretty quickly in the big picture. They can do a lot of damage along the way, and by no means am I making any defense of modern chemical and plastic pollution. It's really, seriously a problem. Like, we're fucking up the endocrine systems of ourselves and every other creature on Earth. That's not good. Also, choking the waterways, I could go on about this all day. While no one is really clear about how they define plastics to be broken down, they would very rarely be larger than microscopic in a couple thousand years. This reference might not make any sense to city people, but for the country people, how many tarps have you seen turn from a strong, flexible material into a pile of plastic dust? Plastic tarps are useless in disintegrating after five years of sunlight exposure. Even our grimy society would be pretty hard to get a solid idea of 10,000 years from now. If a full-on apocalyptic event knocked us back into the Stone Age tomorrow, people living 12,000 years from now will find some things that they don't know are microplastics in the cases where they were well-preserved in the ground. You know, they'd blend right in. It's just another weird little particle. Strange that it's got so many fucking elements hanging off of it, but whatever. They may possibly find the occasional well-preserved car bumper in a mysterious nuclear bunker. God knows we find a lot of gigantic underground structures that don't make a lot of fucking sense. They would find some foundations of buildings, but even super-reinforced concrete is in pretty rough shape after a thousand years, let alone ten thousand. What this possible lost civilization did have was the ability to build things out of stone in ways that we no longer do. In the last two episodes, I first covered the strange and dubious topic of ancient alien theory, then the totally concrete topic of megalithic structures. Well, it's not concrete, it's stone, but it's solid, whether these things were built before or after the end of the Ice Age. When you build things out of giant rocks, they last. So, we don't know anything about the people that lived in the period directly before the end of the Ice Age, but they sure could make some crazy shit out of rock. Before I move on, it's worth mentioning that when Plato wrote about Atlantis, the date he gives for when it was destroyed was 9,600 BC. In other words, it was covered by water, 11,600 years ago. That date pops up a lot, huh? Well, here's why. Part 2. What happened? In local astronomy, there's something called the toroid meteor stream. It's called that because it comes from the direction of the constellation Taurus from the perspective of Earth. It would appear that there was once a large object in our solar system that broke apart for some reason at some point, and now there's this gigantic shotgun blast in an oblong orbit around the sun with us. We cross paths with it twice a year, once around midsummer and once around Halloween. Halloween may be associated with all that spooky stuff because it's a cultural memory of when Earth was once hit with a comet a long time ago, which was a disaster so bad that we don't even remember it. So, think of this meteor stream like a necklace, overlaid with a bracelet representing Earth's orbit. I'm sorry, this is going to be difficult to explain, but bear with me. The necklace is oblong and spinning around the sun, but while most of it is just chain, there's an area of it where most of the rocks are. When the rocky part of the necklace lines up with the rock on the bracelet representing Earth, there's a much higher chance that Earth gets hit. I know that's a strange analogy without a visual aid, but hopefully you can visualize what I'm getting at. Beginning 12,800 years ago, Earth entered the rocky part of the toroid meteor stream. Seems like Earth was hit with multiple comets over the course of 1,200 years during that time, according to the Comet Research Group. Some comets won't do too much damage, as comets are basically fast-moving snowballs from space. But if they're large enough and hit Earth in the right spot, they can really fuck shit up. Comet impacts leave less obvious evidence than their rocky cousins, meteors. Meteors are made out of metal and rock, so it's not that hard to tell where they hit. Because 
there's a giant crater full of space metal. On the other hand, comets are mostly ice, which means they may leave a crater, but practically no residue. They can, and often do, leave traces of trinitite, also known as nuclear glass, which is essentially melted sand created by the extreme temperatures of the impact. Technically, it's called impactite when it's created by a meteor, but it's basically the same shit. There are many examples of trinitite or impactite found from around this time period of the world. It looks like a fairly large comet hit the gigantic ice sheet in Canada at some point in the 1200-year window of the Younger Dryas, most likely at the beginning, 12,800 years ago. Remember that this ice sheet was miles thick for the most part, and it covered the absolutely gigantic landmass of the upper half of North America. To refresh, the ice sheet roughly hugged the U.S.-Canadian border in the west, dipped down to Ohio and even Kentucky, and covered most of the modern northeast of the United States. Because this comet appears to have hit an ice sheet, it absorbed the impact, leaving no crater. This makes it a particularly difficult impact to identify, which is part of why this whole theory is pretty controversial. It's hard to prove exactly what caused it, but it is much easier to prove that a whole lot of ice on top of Canada turned into a lot of water, iceberg, and vapor in an instant. When a giant chunk of space ice hits a giant chunk of land ice at something like 70,000 miles an hour, everything melts instantly. A comet impact can hit with a power similar to all of the nuclear weapons on Earth going off at once in one spot. It's an unimaginable amount of energy, so a lot of the water instantly vaporizes, and water vapor is actually probably the most potent greenhouse gas on Earth. They never talk about that, though. Anyway, you want to see global warming? Boil some fraction of an ice cap in an instant and watch the entire fucking planet turn into a sauna. Next, there's all that ice that just became water really quickly. It has to go somewhere, so it washes down and across the entire continent of North America full of chunks of ice, mud, rocks, and any poor bastard that's unlucky enough to be standing in the way. That's how we end up with all these broken animals packed into mud from that time period. They got hit by an icy, muddy tidal wave out of fucking nowhere, and laid to rest wherever there was a geological depression to get stuck in. Woof. As the water continued to wash over them, they were mummified in the muck of the most epic and terrifying flood that you could possibly imagine. Any building that may have existed in North America was completely destroyed. For weeks or even months, the continent was flooded, and many of the natural landmarks of North America appeared to be the result of this gigantic puddle draining into the oceans. A good example is the Grand Canyon. There's debate about this, as many stick with the idea that this beautiful place was carved over millions of years, but others like Randall Carlson suggest it might have been eroded over the course of weeks as the continent drained. If one looks at the Grand Canyon from a satellite, it looks a lot like how a muddy puddle drains when it's given one low spot for the water to go. Much of the evidence of this epic flash flood looks like ripples you would see in everyday life caused by moving water at a mind-numbingly gigantic scale. Ever seen little ripples in sand at the bottom of a creek, like a tiny little Sahara desert? Now imagine how much water would be needed to create 40-foot-tall sand ripples. As above, so below. Many of the river valleys of the United States may have also been shaped by this event. As the water drained, they filled giant, temporary mega-rivers in places like the modern Mississippi River Valley. Actually, one of the guys who came up with this, Randall Carlson, I've mentioned him, apparently was standing on top of a bluff, kind of over Minnesota, and he just saw how this whole thing was just this gigantic mega river for a little bit, and it just carved out this whole huge valley that Minneapolis sits in. Pretty crazy, huh? I live in Vermont, and when I hike up the mountains here, I can see how this land might have been shaped by this fucking brutal flood. I can imagine the billions or trillions of gallons a minute of water rushing through the valleys, causing erosion at, like, a fucking astounding scale, 
and leaving these odd giant rocks on mountainsides. Those are called glacial erratics, by the way. Giant rocks that don't match the local geology, which were dropped off in random locations by glaciers melting on top of the mountain or, you know, maybe a gigantic flood. Classically, the giant scraping marks present on bedrock on top of hills and low mountains was thought to be from glaciers slowly scraping across the top of them. While there's definitely some truth to this, it's pretty likely that a lot of that was caused by the random rocks and objects being torn across his landscape in this horrifying torrent. As the immense weight of all this ice was quickly lifted off the land, a process called isostatic depression occurred. The semi-liquid mantle under the crust of Earth filled in the now uncompressed area under where the ice sheet had been. When the magma displaced, the coastal areas dropped in elevation, literally sinking into the ocean. At the same time, all this new water was filling in the oceans, so many of the coastal areas of Earth likely sank into the sea in a pretty dramatic fashion. I know that sounds pretty nuts, but it's actually pretty simple physics, really. Geology, technically. It's all physics. Meanwhile, all this tectonic activity probably caused a lot of earthquakes, tsunamis, and volcanoes. To add to this totally fucked situation, there's also evidence of forest fires all over the planet during the Younger Dryas. I cannot stress enough how much getting hit with space rocks or snowballs is really bad. Just in this episode, we're covering flooding, earthquakes, volcanoes, forest fires, probably mass starvation and disease. Yeah, it was probably the worst 1,200 years that people have ever existed through on Earth. Yet. That's the short version of the geology, etc., involved in this whole event. I'm no geologist, but I do love me some rock. I've listened to plenty of actual scientists on this subject, and this seems to be the most convincing theory of what happened to me then. Personally. There's a lot more to it, but I'm trying to keep this super cheerful episode compact. Randall Carlson, the geologist, is the guy to really explain the particulars of the geological evidence of this event, if you're interested. That guy has spent his life dedicated to this topic, and while I'm a big fan of his, I've barely scratched the surface of his research on this. Him and Graham Hancock have done a lot of podcasts with Joe Rogan on the subject, which is a good gateway drug to the Younger Dryas impact theory. Then Hancock wrote, like, 12 books on it, if you find yourself obsessively climbing down this rabbit hole like I did six years ago. There are theories of how this all happened that don't involve any catastrophes or flood, but they are really convoluted, and frankly, they don't seem very likely. There's one story about some ice dam breaking open and refreezing over and over that totally doesn't cover the scale of what it's trying to explain. I'm not going to dive into all that, I'm just giving one perspective, and I invite you to research the end of the Ice Age in North America yourself if you're interested. Just going to throw this out there, though. The normie perspective blows. It makes no sense, and it's really, really boring. But, I might as well briefly throw in some of the more wild theories. Alternate Theory 1. War. There's a theme that Atlantis was at war with basically the whole planet, including another superpower located around Southeast Asia. Sounds familiar. I don't know if these are just stories that weirdos with Ouija boards came up with in the late 1800s, or if there was actually anything to back up these ideas, because it's all considered total pseudo-history now either way. At very least, Plato asserted that Atlantis had attacked Athens in hazy prehistory. Just to put in my two cents on the possibility, many of the legends about the time before the Flood reference that people were very warlike back then, and this war was maybe in some way linked to the global disaster. Maybe there was a war going on, and the disaster was a result of a superweapon being used or something. For example, nuking the shit out of the ice cap in Canada might have had the same effect as it being hit with a comet. That would be a really effective way to wipe out whoever was living south of there in the modern United States. 
In our modern world, the rulers are all too casually flirting with war between many nuclear-armed factions. Knowing that, the idea of someone bombing the whole planet into the Stone Age is not that crazy. People do really dumb stuff with really powerful weapons. Who knows? That war and the natural disasters at the end of the Ice Age could have been the cause, a coincidence, or the war and its belligerence might have all been nothing more than a story. Alternate Theory 2. Space shit that we don't understand. Then there's another possibility that I've personally been toying with in all the research I've been doing for this series of episodes. Remember back in episode 2 how I mentioned that some scientists thought that a star had exploded nearby in the last couple million years or so? Well, maybe you don't, but it's been floating around in the back of my mind as I've put together the rest of these episodes. So, one star in particular that many cultures across the planet seemed oddly obsessed with in my research is the star Sirius. Many of the megalithic structures I mentioned in episode 5 are aligned with it with absolutely ridiculous precision. Yeah, it's the brightest star in the sky, and it happens to be pretty close to us in space terms, which might explain their fascination right there. But, on the other hand, it's also a binary star system, and one of the stars in the system went supernova and exploded at some point. Possibly recently. The Dogon people of Mali in Africa that I mentioned in episode 4 said that the alien fish people told them that they were escaping their star Sirius because it was about to explode. Yes, I am aware of how ridiculous that sentence was. Still, if it exploded, say, 12,000 years ago, that explosion may have been dramatic enough to rattle our little planet all the way over here. It's still weird that the Dogon people knew Sirius was a binary star system, and it's even weirder that they say alien fish people from that star told them that. Do with that information what you will, I really don't know what to say about it. I don't think Sirius B exploding is what ended the Ice Age, but it's interesting food for thought. Alternate Theory 3 Pole Shift Finally, there's the last, possibly most brutal theory, and I really hope this one isn't true. One idea is that the magnetic poles of Earth shift periodically. That there is, supposedly, lots of evidence for this more recently in our timeline, and it's definitely happened before, at some point in Earth's history. Geologically, it's clear that our magnetic poles haven't been consistent to their current positions forever. Remember all of those mysterious mass extinction events I mentioned in episodes about pre-human time periods? Well, one thing that could explain that is the, the magnetic fields of Earth shift on a cycle. Other sources say it can't really be predicted. Whether it's cyclical or completely random, when this happens, the ionosphere doesn't protect us from the brutal radiation of space. That doesn't happen for long, but it is without question a very, very bad time. Furthermore, the planet may, and has, literally tilted on its axis, so the oceans go all over the place from the inertia, and places that were recently in the tropics could find themselves suddenly in the Arctic. This has almost positively happened before at some point on Earth, but it's still one of those things it's really hard to get a solid idea of. This is a thing that no one ever really thinks about, but it is unimaginably apocalyptic, and it's definitely happened before at some point. The magnetic poles move slowly, all the time, but before a shift, they start to speed up until they suddenly snap to a new position. The poles used to move 8 miles a year back in the 80s. Now they're supposedly moving about 50 miles a year. That means the magnetic poles are moving about a mile a week now, currently. The supposed cycle of this pole shift event is about every 13,000 years. So yeah, that all just sounds like really hardcore doomer stuff to me. I remember it being a big part of the discussion of how 2012 was going to be the end of the world. Remember that? Seems like nothing happened, but I gotta admit the last 12 years have been increasingly weird. 
Still, the people who make a case for this being the cause of the events 12,000 years ago, and possibly again soon, do have a case. I just hope they're paranoid and wrong. Anyway, moving on. Part, uh, whatever. So, like, what happened to the people? The effects of whatever did happen were global in scale. I prefer the comet theory, personally, so I'm going to explain it in that context, but you can insert nuclear war or pole shift into this context. Whatever follows is pretty much the same either way. It's unclear exactly when and where the other comets hit and what their effect was, but the Comet Research Group does believe more than one comet impacted the Earth during the Younger Dryas period. The educated guess is that at least one hit 12,800 years ago on the ice sheet, possibly a couple others, then another that probably hit the ocean, like the Pacific Ocean, roughly, 11,600 years ago. That one would have caused a lot of tsunamis and put a ton of water vapor into the atmosphere, causing a lot of global warming. What is extremely clear is that sea levels rose 400 feet or so. That's, that's a fact. They believe that this happened in two parts, Meltwater Pulse 1A, 12,800 years ago, and Meltwater Pulse 1B, 11,600 years ago. I don't understand why they didn't just call it Pulse 1 and 2, because there isn't a Pulse 7Q or anything, but it sounds very scientific. Every coastal community on Earth was swallowed by the sea. When you consider where our modern cities are, the majority of the populated areas of Earth are right on the coastlines, and they probably were then, too. New York City, for example, would totally be underwater, and the buildings there wouldn't last long with their foundations submerged in seawater. More than 6 million square miles of land during the Ice Age, as in it was land in the Ice Age, about the area of Europe and China combined, is now underwater. It was where most of the people were, aside from the weirdos who'd live in places like Colorado. If it happened in the way that I've laid out, it's pretty likely that these lowland areas were flooded by the ocean at a pretty dramatic pace, which might explain the many flood stories that we have from across humanity, everywhere. Atlantis, for example, has been the kooky lost civilization that everybody has heard of and nobody has believed in for centuries. Without knowing all the background that I just mentioned, the idea of a city or a whole civilization sinking into the ocean is fucking ridiculous. In context, it's not that weird. We know of this legend from Plato, who heard it from his ancestor Solon, who had learned of it when he was studying at the famous Library of Alexandria in Egypt. Man, I wish that place had never gotten burned down. Anyway. The Egyptians said in 600 BC that they had been a colony of the Atlantean civilization, and that Atlantis had been swallowed by the sea 9,000 years before then. When you do the math, that lines up to be 11,600 years ago. There are some interesting links between Central American and Egyptian culture, like pyramids and some Egyptian hieroglyphs found in Central America. Also, I heard that they found coca in an Egyptian mummy's hair once. That's cocaine, to be clear. That stuff only grew in South America. Yeah, I looked it up. Several mummies had cocaine in their hair, notably a priestess known as the Lady of the Two Lands. Which, uh, you know, two lands like South America and Africa, presumably? Anyway. Read into it however you'd like. The ancient Egyptians did like to party, taking drugs that we would recognize and others that are really not that popular anymore. They also apparently partied like it was 1983 from time to time, and I'm totally checking that out when I get a time machine. Anyway, there's also a rumor of a full-on underground Egyptian city carved into the wall of the Grand Canyon in an area that's named after a bunch of Egyptian gods. The area is off-limits, though, and a bunch of helicopters and paramilitary types arrest you if you even attempt to go near it, so that totally doesn't seem sketchy. Nothing to see there, right? 
If the ancient Egyptians weren't just bullshitting that they were a colony of Atlantis, that might make sense. It's also possible that they were all giggling when the Greek nerd dude got back on his boat because they convinced him of one of the greatest pranks in history. So, I won't deep dive into where Atlantis might have been, or if it existed at all, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was a major civilization during the Ice Age, somewhere around the area of Florida, Central America, and the Caribbean. Much of that area would have been flooded by the rising sea levels, or wiped off the face of the Earth by the flood event in North America. With isostatic depression causing coastal areas to sink in elevation, it is actually possible that it literally sank under the waves, just like the wacky old story said. There are an awful lot of extremely impressive megalithic structures in the Americas. Some, like the Bimini Road, are underwater. Other underwater structures exist all over Earth, but nobody's really looking for them, and 12,000 years underwater probably has mostly erased them anyway. You can find them all over the place, though. They're off the coast of Japan, and they're all over Indonesia. It's weird how many buildings are just underwater now. Very advanced stone buildings. Anyway. On the other side of the planet, the area of modern Indonesia is now a chain of islands. Back before the end of the Ice Age, the whole area was a subcontinent of Asia, like India. It's unknown to what degree the area was developed back then, but much of that landmass is now underwater. It would have been a likely and convenient place for early humanity to set up shop, though. Legend has it that there was another civilization based in that area of the world, which is now dubiously called Lemuria, or Mu. Not Mu like a cow, but M-U. Anyway, the origin of those names is pretty stupid now, but the idea that there was some major civilization in Southeast Asia back then is not. Anyway, regardless of what civilizations existed before the Cataclysm and where, if they were complex to any degree, they collapsed in the literally biblical apocalypse of the Younger Dryas. It does appear that a lot of people were still living the good old-fashioned hunter-gatherer lifestyle back then, though, alongside whatever complex civilizations existed at the time. The survivors from the collapsed civilizations may have joined them to survive in these 1,200 horrifying years, or reverted back to the old ways like some apocalyptic science fiction movie. At this time is where an interesting global trend seems to have taken place. In that time after the shit stopped hitting the fan, and everything calmed down, everybody had made it back to hunting with sticks and picking berries, for the most part, everywhere across the planet. That's around 11,500 years ago or so. And next is a story I briefly mentioned in the last episode on megalithic structures. Around the world, completely separated civilizations have a story of a civilizing hero showing up. Sometimes it's a couple people, who are often called some kind of wizard, and they teach everybody how agriculture is the best thing ever. Occasionally, they have a dragon friend, or are themselves a dragon of some kind or another, and the guy is often depicted with a beard. And they're always known for showing up on a particularly large boat, which is often noted to have no oars or sails. Strangely, the version of this character for each civilization is globally depicted to have something that looks like a little handbag or a briefcase. The Mayans and Olmecs carved this into stone, along with the Egyptians, Babylonians, Micronesians, Chinese, and the people who probably became the Greeks in modern Turkey. The Nords probably just called it a hammer because my ancestors weren't interested in anything that couldn't break skulls or shoot lightning. The only major civilization I'm not sure of on this is the Indians, but I bet they've got a handbag guy too. Except their version of him is blue and has 12 arms, 33 penises, and 8 boobs for some reason. No disrespect, ancient India is awesome. I'm looking forward to knowing more about their ancient stories because they seem super cool, and it's a bit of a hole in my personal knowledge and this episode's research. But I'll get there, I promise. 
Anyway, pretty much everybody has a story about big boat agriculture wizard guy. Either this is one guy or group sailing around the world and helping everybody get back on their feet, or it was the remains of some advanced culture trying to restart the devastated civilizations of post-apocalyptic Earth. Honestly, it would make a pretty great movie, although it would get really, really repetitive. It would get repetitive because this story basically always goes exactly the same way. Boat Guy shows up, from Undisclosed Magic Land, on his awesome giant boat that has no oars or sails. He teaches everybody about agriculture with religious overtones, often founding the religion at the same time. Often this guy ends up being synonymous with the god of agriculture. Then half the time he throws up some megalithic structure, sometimes with the help of a dragon, whatever that means, and this structure often becomes associated with being a temple to agriculture. All along the way, he appears to be a good and respectable guy with a magnificent beard, and the people come to love him. Then, one day, Big Boat Guy has done what he's come to do, and brought civilization to the people of this land. He thanks the people, and they thank him. Such a pleasant stay. He's got to ramble on, in the words of Led Zeppelin. Presumably, he then goes on to sing his song, go around the world, but we never find out if he finds his girl. I hope he did, though because he seems like a nice civilizing hero, and we all kind of owe him if that story that was told around the world was true at all. How they rebuilt the world is a question for later seasons, because this is the end of this one. I can't tell you what this time looked like, but chances are it was some combination of Mad Max and Waterworld. If you don't get those references, honestly, I'm happy for you. But the people who existed then survived, and rebuilt, and now, here we are. So, that's the story of the ancient apocalypse, the hit our species took so hard that we barely have any memory of it. And that's the end of this chapter of the human story, and the end of an era for Earth. Well, technically it was the end of an epoch, but from now on, our story will take place entirely in the Holocene. That's fantastic, because that's where we live. Thankfully, the whole rest of human history is somehow less complicated in this epic saga of how we got here. Researching this period and putting it all together has been both a pleasure and a ridiculous undertaking. I'm somewhere between ashamed and proud to admit that it has taken almost five months. Who would have thought that 4.5 billion years of natural history and the evolution of the human race would be so complicated? I'm finishing this recording with a couple glasses of wine to me at 3 a.m. on a Friday night. If there was ever a time for that, it's here. I also managed to record it with uh, Reverb on. For vocals and music. Because I'm a jackass. You're welcome. Here we come to the moral of this story, which has got a kind of manic quality to it in a way. A lot of my generation, roughly, seems to think that the world's going to end. Whether people think climate change is going to kill us all, or the grid's going to go down, or they just think the shit our world is going through isn't sustainable, it's a whole vibe these days, you know? But the world is going to be fine. It is not in our power to fuck up badly enough to destroy this planet. That's pretty much out of the question. Sure, it's vaguely possible that some dickhead with a flag lapel pin could cause humanity-wide suicide and totally ruin the planet for about a million years, but I'm telling you, Earth would go on just fine at some point afterwards. Even the worst nuclear war that you could possibly imagine matters so little in the big picture that you couldn't detect it a million years later. Yeah, in all the time of life on Earth, there could have been all sorts of nuclear wars, and we really have no idea. That's because Earth is a tough little rock. Only space can actually kick our ass that bad. Even when space has beat the living shit out of Earth, though, life dusted itself off and went on. 
In this series, we watched life get mostly wiped out three different times before the big one that killed off the dinosaurs. Every single time, life just marched on. After the dinosaurs died out 66 million years ago, the planet experienced crazy global warming, with even the Arctic Ocean being over 110 degrees Fahrenheit at the surface. That wasn't even that big of a deal. There was no mass extinction, plants just chowed down on all the extra carbon in the atmosphere while the mammals took over the world. Then the world got really cold eventually. Yeah, things gradually went extinct here and there, like in any other time, but Earth developed grass and cats, so it was pretty much worth it in the big picture, at least in my opinion. Then humans developed, and for all their faults, I think that was worth it too, because I really love some of the ones I've met. Finally, the slate was wiped clean again when the Ice Age ended. It was one of the great mass extinctions of Earth's history, but it set the stage for the world that we live in now. I'm mildly sad that there's no more woolly mammoths, and for some reason it kind of bothers me that I'll never see a saber-toothed tiger. No matter how we feel about it, though, we have the fantastic privilege to have inherited the world that they recently left behind. For all the flaws that are brought up in humanity, it's often ignored just how wonderful this species is. If just for those people that I've known, or those people that you've known, everything that's ever happened was worth it so that they could exist. I sincerely hope you love some people so much that that makes perfect sense. So, don't panic. We're going to be fine. The more I learn, the more I understand that. The planet can take pretty much anything, and life will never give up. Our ancestors never gave up. They struggled for the ones they loved in the future. And I'll never give up for just the same reasons. It's a kind of heavy concept, but it's carried me through the darkest times I've ever had because I know my DNA has definitely seen darker things. Even if life is a little weird right now, and even if it gets a lot weirder, it's all going to make sense to some jackass that's writing about it thousands of years from now. So, be kind, because nothing is forever. But maybe our tiny acts of resilience and good echo through time, and I think they're louder than all the horror. Maybe we need the dark to see the light. Maybe it's all the way it's meant to be. Thank you for listening. And I hope you'll join me in appreciating the great deeds of our past, the excellent and terrible people that made our world, and the wonderful stories that they left for us. I don't know if I'm unusual in this, but these stories really fill me up and inspire me. I truly believe if people learn these things in a way that touches their soul, the world might be a better place. And we might understand each other a bit better and know that there's good in this world, Mr. Frodo, that it's worth fighting for. Knowing what life on Earth and humanity has been through has changed me for the better. I love that squirrel that lives next to my house. That bear that I chase away from my trash and the people that I see every day that are all part of this wonderful ongoing experiment of life. He gives me, and hopefully us, the strength to know that people have lived through horrors beyond our comprehension and seen wonders that made all of that worth it. No matter what happens, we can all make it worth it. So, sorry that was all a bit cheesy and sentimental. But that's what these stories do to me, and I hope they can do the same for you. Thank you, but we have only just begun. Welcome again, my friends, to ADD History. <laughs>